Parshas Bechukose discusses the first big section of the Parsha, discusses the blessings and the curses, the blessings that will befall the Jewish people if they obey God, if they do the mitzvah, study the Torah, and the curses, a much longer section that will befall the Jewish people if they do not obey God. In Bechukose Lechu, if you do the right thing, you listen to Hashem, you'll have all kinds of good things. You'll have the rains in the right time, you'll have great harvests, you'll have plenty, and you'll be satisfied. You'll have security. You'll have peace. When you do have war, you'll chase your enemies. They'll fall before you for the sword. You'll, you'll, you'll have tremendous, uh, wonderful success against them. You'll have uh, all kinds of good things. In Los Yishmuli, if you do not do what Hashem wants, etc., and you, and you violate the commandments, terrible, terrible things will happen to you. Behala, shachefes, kadachas, different types of plagues and fevers, and your agriculture will fail. Your enemies will rule over you. You'll have Shemechem Kabarzel, Arzachem Kanachusha. All your work will be in vain. You, you, the, the land won't bring forth fruit, and so on. You'll have your, your, your all, all your traffic will come to a halt. You'll have Cherev, Nokemeth, Nikambris, sword and desolation and uh, economic catastrophe to the point of cannibal, cannibalism, eating your children. You'll, your cities will be desolate. You'll be dispersed among the non Jews. And so on, people will chase you, even when they don't chase you, you'll, you'll just run, you'll be so terrified all the time, and so on, terrible, terrible things will happen. It's striking that throughout the Parsha, all the rewards and punishments that the Torah enumerates are all, are all this worldly. Agriculture, military, health, peace, war, and so on both the positive and the negative, everything in the parsha deals pretty much with this world, material consequences, there's really nothing about the world to come. And this is true not just of this week's parsha, not just of Bukhukose, this is true of Tarsha Bukhsav in general. Throughout the different places in the Torah where Hashem warns us of the terrible things that will occur if we don't uh, follow His will and the great things that will happen if we do, the punishments and the rewards are always couched in down-to-earth, literally down-to-earth things like peace and war and uh, feast and famine, fertility, disease, health, and so on. There's never any reference to the world to come. Now, the fact that Torah Shabbat most of Torah Shabbat doesn't really discuss Olam Haba, doesn't discuss uh, the world to come, there are, a few, there are a few places where it does. Daniel, some of the more eschatological sections of, of the Navi and the Ksuvim, do touch on this, but in general, certainly Chumash doesn't really make any reference to the world to come. This has led some people to believe, not Orthodox people, but some people to believe that Judaism does not believe in the world to come. You, you, you listen to, to non-Orthodox, uh, non-Orthodox versions of Judaism, they say, oh, you know, hell is a Christian thing, or the world to come is uh, not a Jewish thing, Judaism does, doesn't, doesn't believe in such a thing. Of course, that is not true. Torah Shabal Peh, uh, insists on the world to come, as being fundamental. As a matter of fact, the, the Mishnah in Chelek, in Perichelek in Sanhedrin, the, 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 the Talmud doesn't really have any kind of systematic theology. The Talmud never really sets forth like the way Rambam does 
and organize in systematic theology what we believe, foundational beliefs, dogma, and, and, and things like that. But to the extent that the Talmud has anything to say on the subject, it is in the, it is in the last parak of Sanhedrin, or the penultimate parak of Sanhedrin, depending on how you order the Prakim. It says there, Kol Yisrael Yeshlam Chelech Olam Haba, all Jews have a share in the world to come. Shenemar Be'amech Kulam Tzadikim Le'olam Yirshu Aretz, Neitzer Matai Masa Yodai Lizbar, However, there is a small, hopefully small, there is, there, is, there is a group of Jews who have no share in the world to come. What are those things? Someone who denies the resuscitation of the dead. Someone who denies the heavenly origin of the Torah. That means something else. Today we use it to mean heretic. Back then it may have meant someone who, uh, who disparages our Torah scholars. But to the extent that we have a theology, the Mishnah says one of the three beliefs mentioned in the Mishnah, the beginning of the first one of the first couple of the first couple of items in the Mishnah are people who forfeit the share in the world to come. First of all, there is a world to come. That's how the entire parak begins. And you forfeit it if you say If you deny if you deny the biblical roots of Khesamesim, then that's right up there with the with denying the the veracity of the Torah, you forfeit your share in the world to come. So Judaism most certainly does believe in the, in the world to come. There is some question as to whether the Mishnah here in Sanhedrin is listing beliefs that are conceptually fundamental or just beliefs that were a point of contention between Jews who accepted the Messiah and other sectarian groups who did not. We have, for example, in Pirkei Avos, we have a famous Mishnah. The Mishnah says right at the beginning, Antignos Ish Socho, there was a certain Chacham one of the Rabbanim named Antignos Ishtoko. He received the Messiah from Shimon Tzadik. And he, he, he would say, he would teach, Don't be like those slaves, like those servants who serve as a quid pro quo with expectation of compensation. Ella, rather you should be, Be like those who serve without any anticipation of reward. So... In Avas Derbi Nassan, it elaborates on this Mishnah. It says that he used to teach this teaching that you should serve out of pure motives, out of uh, at just l'shem shemayim. He had two Talmidim, it says, and he taught them this, this teaching. His Talmidim said, really? They thought he meant there is no reward. Just do it, just do it l'shem shemayim because there's nothing else. A, a person will die and, 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 and nothing will come of it. Is that fair, they said? Does that make any sense? Uh, an, an employee, a laborer who works all day and is not going to get paid in the evening? If there'd be Skyrim Al Mahaba, they they would tell us about this. So he, he they understood that he that he was essentially letting the cat out of the bag. He was conceding there's no Skyrim Al Mahaba. Amdu Pirshimanatara. They said enough, we were not interested in Torah. And they were the founders of two great sectarian heretical schools, the Tadukim and the Baitusim, two famous groups from the time of the Second Temple era, who rejected rabbinic teachings, and according to this Avashrabinasan, it all started because of this theological point that they misinterpreted the teaching of Antignus Ishtocho, they rejected the idea of the world to come, of the, of the afterlife, and therefore they went, and therefore they went, uh, and they founded uh, com- completely sectarian schools. The Bryce goes on, it says they would use luxurious furnishings, they would use klichesif uklizav, not because they needed them so badly, because they were not because they were just uh, hedonists who needed gold and silver. They were making a philosophical point. They said, they said the prushim 
think they're going to uh, they, they're going to deprive themselves in this world. They're not going to get anything in the next world. What's the point? What's the point of stinting and of uh, and of depriving? There's nothing left. There's nothing but this world. We're going to use gold and silver because this is the world that we live in. And they rejected the whole concept of the afterlife. So whether it's a theological question, whether it has to do with a sectarian argument, whether we accept the traditions of the rabbis or not, we see back then, more than two thousand years ago already, the question of the afterlife and Olam Haba and Chiyas was something which was uh, a major point of controversy between the Rabbanim and the Tzedukim. And, uh, and of course, the, of course the, the rabbinic belief most certainly is that there is an afterlife, there is Tchiesa Mesim. Rambam lists this in his 13 Principles of Faith, Tzchar uh, and Mesim Yechayakel, the last one, Hashem will, will, will resuscitate the dead, Tchiesa Mesim. As we'll discuss later in more detail, the Rambam very strongly believed that Tchiesa Mesim is not the same thing as Olam Haba. There, there's a fair amount of confusion about this in, in rabbinic language, whether Olam Haba and Tchiesa Mesim refer to the same thing or different things. They clearly both refer to something that will happen in the future where people will be rewarded, reward that they did not, that they did not receive in this life, but whether the same thing or not. But either way, the Rambam counts Tchiesa Mesim in, in his 13 Principles of Faith, Ram discusses Olam Haba at great length in his writings. Again, we'll discuss that in more detail soon. So certainly, traditional rabbinic Judaism, as far as I know, pretty much without exception, believes in Olam Haba, believes in Tchiesa Mesim. So the question is then, so why? Why does our parsha? why does the rest of Tarsha Baksav studiously avoid any mention of all these things? All the rewards and punishments are, are couched in terms of earthly earthly blessings and curses, all the things that we want in this world, peace and tranquility and plenty and, and happiness in this world as opposed to suffering and privation and war and famine and disease. Why, why, is, the, why is the exclusive focus on, on Olam Hazeh and not Olam Haba? So this is a question that indeed the great theologians, the great commentators of the Mikra grappled with for centuries. There are a variety, going back more than a thousand years, a variety of different approaches to this question. I don't know how satisfying we'll find any of the any of the individual approaches, but there are a variety of different approaches which are proposed by various, again, various thinkers and various commentaries to Tanakh. One of the very first, perhaps the very first discussion of this that we find is in Rav Sadia Gon. Rav Sadia Gon, one of the great Gaonim of Bavel, he was perhaps the first uh, the first work we have of systematic Jewish theology. He wrote Hanivchar ben Munos Videos, and Munos Videos, as we call it, which was an attempt to uh, systematize and organize Jewish theology. And he discusses Olam Haba, that, that that's always been one of the central, one of the central, uh, central topics of Jewish theology. He insists that we do believe in Olam Haba. Again, even though it's not always clearly stated in the Torah, he tries to bring numerous, so his discussion has two parts. First, he tries to bring numerous proofs from biblical language, from biblical narratives that there is such a thing as Elm Haba. And in the course of his discussion, he tries to address why, if there is, why the Psukim are, are conspicuously silent about it in, in Bukhukosag and elsewhere where the Torah discusses the reward and punishment. So it's interesting, one of his main lines of argument that there is such a thing as, as the world to come is from various great biblical tzaddikim who gave up their lives for Hashem, and it wouldn't have made sense for them to do that if they didn't believe in an afterlife. He says, Yitzchak, Yitzchak at the Akedah, gave up his life to be slaughtered, to, to obey Hashem. 
had he not known there'd be schar in Olam Haba, had he thought that this world is all there is, how would he do that? How would he do that and hope for any kind of recompense? Hashem wouldn't ask him to do it. It's not fair. If there's no schar, it wouldn't be fair. Hanani Mishal Vazariah. They, they were thrown into a fire. They, they were Moshe Nefesh for Hashem. They were thrown into the fire. We say in Slichas, it's a story, it's a story in Tanakh, they were, they were thrown into the fire to avoid bowing down to Nebuchadnezzar's idol. Had they known that this world is all there is, had they believed this world is all there is, and that once you die, that's it, it's over, what hope would they have? How can they do this? Daniel, he, he was thrown to the lions, Daniel in the lions den. Mishanel Daniel Begovarayas. Why for Tefillah? Because he wanted to pray to Hashem. Had he thought that was all that there was, was Olam Hazet, wouldn't have made any sense? What would be left of him after, the, after, after this? I don't really understand this argument so well. Rambam, as we mentioned earlier, Rambam, Antigonus is Shocho, Rambam elaborates upon this at length. A person is supposed to be over Hashem, L'Shem Shemayim, because it's the right thing to do, not because he hopes for reward. So even if Yitzchak and Hanani Mishal Vazaria and Daniel would have believed they were going to be killed, if there was still Moser Nefesh, because it's the right thing to do. A person's supposed to be over Hashem because that's the right thing to do. I don't know why Rav Sadia seems to feel that all these great biblical martyrs, what they did, wouldn't have been coherent, wouldn't have been sensible, had they not believed in Olam Habab. But that's what he says. He makes another very interesting argument. He says that... He says that... Uh, he has a number of different lines of argument, but another very interesting one is that... Hashem commands us to kill children sometimes. Genocide, kill children. Midyanim, we were commanded to kill the Taf. And Hashem, Hashem killed children in the Dharamapal. Hashem killed children all the time, whether in Ukraine or the Holocaust or, uh, or the plague and so on. He says, Hashem is miyasuris Taf. Hashem causes great pain. Children get cancer. Children, uh, terrible things happen to them. So he says, were it not for the fact that Hashem has a way of settling accounts after death, Hashem will give them some reward in, in, lieu, in lieu of the suffering they had in this life, these things wouldn't have made sense. Hashem wouldn't be bringing afflictions on all the poor innocent children, and He wouldn't have commanded us to kill them. This is a sheet I think of Rav in particular. He believes that sometimes Hashem kind of uh, borrows from you. He, he, he brings you serum to you and then pays you back later. Others, I think, disagree. Others, I think, say that they talk about what Chazal meant by Yisurim Shalava. Others disagree with this idea that Hashem would just bring, bring Peronius on you with intent to pay you back later. Rav Sadia feels that the only thing that can really justify Hashem, Hashem bringing pain and suffering to children and other innocents is because Hashem will pay them back. If they're dead, where is He going to pay them back? It must be Alam Haba. Okay, so Rav Sadia brings these lines of argument as well as a number of others to try to prove that the Torah takes for granted, the Torah assumes a world to come, an afterlife. So then the question is, again, the question we began with, so then why is it not discussed in Parshat B'chukosai? Why does the Torah never really address it head-on, explicitly? So he gives two reasons. His first reason is that, oh, this, is some, this is not something that, w- that we will relate to very well, but, he's, but in his time this made sense, in the, in the philosophy of Rav Sadia and the Rambam, this made sense. Rav Sadia says, Olam Haba, is davar shasechel morala. Olam haba is something which is demonstrable by reason. If, if you think about, it, you think it through, you'll you'll arrive at the conclusion that there is such a thing as olam haba. As as he's explained, he says. So the Torah doesn't have to. The Torah doesn't spend a lot of time explaining things which are logically demonstrable. In mitzvahs as well, the Torah when it, when it discusses basic mitzvahs, lo sirtzach, lo sinaf, lo signov, they're all pretty brief. Kosechel tells you that. Other things which are not so obvious, he says, the Torah spends much more time on because they're, 
because I'm sorry about about the Anochishemolakachalasirtzimosinafulasignum. He says when Hashem first commanded Adam Arisha not to eat from the Eitzadas, he didn't tell him don't murder. He didn't tell him don't steal. He he he, he told him about the Eitzadas. Why? Because these other things were obvious. You don't have to say so much about them. Eitzadas was a chiddush. Eitzadas was something uh, not immediately obvious. So he says, in general, the Torah spends more time, focuses on those things which are not trivial, which are not obvious. Therefore, he says, Olam Haba, I don't know if it's obvious, but at least it's demonstrable by reason, he says, while Schar and Olam Hazeh is not so obvious, he says, Schar and Olam Hazeh, Hashem will have to change the laws of nature to, to bring good to those who serve him and bad. That's not, that's not Teva, he says. That, that's, uh, that's uh, he implies, that's not Teva, that's... Uh, the logic does not dictate that. Olam Haba is dictated by logic. Again, Rambam develops the same, the same theme in general. Rambam says Olam Haba is something that's part of philosophy. If you understand that Ben Ezra discusses this, as we'll discuss a little bit later, Olam Haba, it, it follows from the nature of the soul and from the nature of, uh, of, of God. That it follows that if a person develops his soul and perfects it and, and does the right thing, his soul will merit uh, uh, eternal continuation. We don't understand that today. We don't even know what the soul is today. They used to, the soul used to be a scientific concept, that what makes inanimate matter animate? The soul. The soul is the animating property of... Uh, they believed even the celestial bodies were animated by souls. Of the, the fact that they have uh, variable motion, circular motion, elliptical motion, indicates that there's an animating uh, soul that they have. We, of course, are not accustomed to thinking of neither terrestrial bodies nor celestial bodies that way. Certainly when it comes to terrestrial bodies, we believe that it's a simple application of the laws of gravity. There are no souls involved. And even with regard to terrestrial things, even biology, we don't, scientists are not typically, today, scientists do not explain the working of the body, the working of life in terms of souls. They used to believe the soul was scientific. The soul is part of the scientific concept of the body. What makes the body alive? The soul. Today we believe that what makes the body alive, the mainstream scientific view, is biochemistry. It's not... Uh, we, we, we don't need an animating. We don't need an animating soul. We we believe that it's simply the reactions of chemical reactions, physical reactions, electrical reactions, and so on. We don't. Modern scientists don't use the soul. So as Jews, we believe in the soul. But as Jews, it's actually a difficult question trying to understand what is the soul. How does the soul? Uh, how does the soul relate to the? We, we believe in a kind of dualism: the material world plus the soul. A. Uh, the the, the the French philosopher, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, D-E-S-C-A-R-T-E-S. Uh, he, he talks about this, the, the, the Cartesian, Cartesian dualism, the, the, the physical and the spiritual, how they relate to each other, what would, what would a living body look like under the laws of physics and biology without a soul, I don't know. I'll call upon him for Rav Sadia and the Rambam. They believe that the soul was a scientific concept, Olam Haba was a logical consequence of souls, and therefore... Olam Haba, the Torah doesn't have to explain to us at great length, because Olam Haba, I don't know why it didn't merit at least a brief mention, if not a lengthy discussion, at least mention it, but okay, going to Sadia, the Torah doesn't discuss Olam Haba, the world of souls, because that is a logically demonstrable concept. It mentions the Gmul and Olam Hazeh, because that is something which is apparently not, it's not something which the Seichel indicates, and therefore the, that's what the Torah discusses. Second reason Sadia says, why no Olam Haba? He says the, the goal of prophecy, the, the point of prophecy is to give us guidance about near future events, things that will befall us, things that we'll encounter and experience in the near future. Those things the Torah spends a lot of time on, the Nevi'im spend a lot of time on. Things which are in the far-flung future, the far-off future, the Torah has relatively little to say about. 
So right now he says in, 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 in the stories in the Chumash, the Jews were the Jews were planning on entering Eretz Israel. The, the plan was they would enter Eretz Israel imminently. They didn't. It took forty years because of the hate of the Miraglim. But the, the, the expectation was they would enter Eretz Israel imminently. So Hashem wrote the Tochah, gave them the Tochah, gave them our Parsha, which would explain how will you experience Eretz Israel? What will happen to you in Eretz Israel? Near future. If you if you do good, you obey my will, then you'll have all the Eretz Israel will be good, you'll have good crops and peace and so on. If you don't obey my will, then things will be terrible. But all that was Elam Hazeb, because all that is, is, is what they were about to experience in Eretz Israel. Olam Haba will happen much, much later, and therefore that, that was in the remote, uh, the remote future, he says. Uh, he, he implies, and therefore, therefore the Torah focuses on the immediate destiny of the Jewish people. And again, why the Torah couldn't tell you at least something about Olam Haba, I'm not sure. But uh, that's what Rav Sadia says, that the, the Torah does not focus on Olam Haba because it is, it's far in the future. It's apparently much, it's, it's not nearly as imminent not as imminent as the Jews' experience of Eretz Yisrael. Okay, so that's the, that, those are the two suggestions of Rav Sadia. Either the Torah doesn't mention Olm Haba because it is logically demonstrable, or the Torah doesn't mention it because the Torah focuses on the here and now, the immediate future, which was Eretz Yisrael. And for those two reasons, the Torah does not, the Torah does not mention the, the Torah does not mention the, the Olam Haba. The next major Jewish thinker, or another, another major Jewish thinker to discuss this question is Rabbeinu Bachi ibn Pekuda, the author of the Chovis Lavavas. Chovis Lavavas is both a Musr work and a philosophical work. People study it today largely as a Musr work, but it's also a work of theology, a work of philosophy. He also raises this question of why is the reward and punishment of Olam Haba, why is it not explicated by the Nevi'im? He gives a number of reasons. He gives about a six, six or eight reasons for why. We'll touch on some of his reasons soon. But moving on, Ibn Ezra, Ibn Ezra also discusses, and Pasha Sazinu also discusses the question of Alam Habba. He says that uh, he brings Rav Hai Gaon. Rav Hai was also one of the great Gaonim, one of the, the, the last of the Gaonim. Rav Hai said, why does the Pasuk not mention, why, do, why does the Mikra, the biblical text, not mention Alam Habba? They knew it by tradition. It was an oral Torah. It was an oral tradition. We have, of course, two Torahs. Famous story of the, the Gemara and Shabbos, Shammai and Hillel. There were a series of Gerus candidates, would-be proselytes, who came to Shammai and Hillel. They came to Shammai and they made unreasonable requests and Shammai threw them out. They came to Hillel. Hillel was more tolerant. Hillel worked with them and converted them. So one of these three Gerim with his... With an unreasonable request, was 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 a was a person who came to Shammai and said, "How many Torahs do you have?" Shammai said, two, Torah Shabbat Torah Shabbat The person said, "I accept Torah Shabbat I don't accept Torah Shabbat So Shammai said, "Get lost." So he went to Hillel, and Hillel managed to demonstrate to him by experiment that that was a foolish and inconsistent position. He made the person realize himself that trying to understand Torah Shabbat without a tradition of how to read it was preposterous. It made no sense. So he, he, he brought the person to the point where the person accepted that we, that we have a Torah Shabbat as well. And this is, of course, a fundamental aspect of Judaism, rabbinic Judaism, that we have two Torahs, Torah Shabbat and Torah Shabbat And there are many things which are not explained clearly in Torah Shabbat and are explained in Torah Shabbat I'm studying the laws of Shechita now in Trefus, and Shechita is a famous example. The Torah says you should, you should slaughter meat 
uh, as I commanded you, the Torah never gives us the details. They're part of the oral Torah. And similarly with theology, Rav Haigon says, certain aspects of Jewish theology were left to Torah Shabal Peh. Since they were detailed in Torah Shabal Peh, there was no need for them in Torah Shabal and therefore the Torah doesn't have to mention them. Again, this idea suffers, I think, from the same weakness as some of the other pshatim. Maybe you don't have to get into all the details, but at least mention it. I mean, put everything in Tarshul Pet, don't write anything down in Tarshul Boksav. And the Torah obviously felt certain things are important enough to be mentioned in Tarshul Boksav. Again, why is Elam Haba not important enough to be mentioned at least once in, uh, in Tarshul Boksav? I don't know, but this is what Rav Haigon said. We don't have to mention, we don't have to mention Elam Haba in Tarshul Boksav because it was already known to the Jews in, through, through Tarshul Al Pet, through the Masara. Rabbeinu Bachia, we mentioned earlier, Rabbeinu Bachia, he, he, he combines the reasons of Rav Sadia, the, he combines one of the reasons of Rav Sadia and Rav Hai. He says one of his reasons why the Torah doesn't have to mention Olam Haba is Tarash Baksav. Everyone knew about Tarash Baksav, he says. Eitzel Ameh to the masses, he says, it was known fr- from the Nevi'im. The Nevi'im taught it, the Nevi'im uh, educated people about it. And for the Chachamim, he says, via reason and their intellect. So people knew about Olam Haba, whether like Rav Sadia, they knew it from Seichel, the Chachamim knew it from Seichel, like Rav Sadia says, whether like Rav Hai, he says, Ameh knew it like Rav Hai says, they knew it from Tarash Peh, they knew it from the, from the teachings of the Nevi'im. So they knew it, people knew about Olam Haba, it doesn't have to mention it in Tarash Sav, because like the Chavos Lois says, many things that Tarash said, many details of mitzvahs. Many explanations of how you do mitzvahs, many obligations, religious obligations a person has are not clearly set forth in Tarash Shabbat They're left for the oral tradition of Tarash Shabbat And therefore, the Torah doesn't have to discuss Olam Haba because Tarash Shabbat doesn't have to discuss it because it's already discussed in Tarash Shabbat Ibn Ezra goes on, and he gives a third reason now, another reason why, why Tarash Shabbat doesn't discuss doesn't discuss Olam Haba. This is almost the opposite, conceptually the opposite of, of the reason of the Sifre, of the Rav Sadia and the Chavos Levavos. He says, Olam Haba is just too hard for ordinary people to understand. Olam Haba is a very abstruse concept. Not one in a thousand people can understand Olam Haba. In order to understand Olam Haba, you have to understand the soul, and you have to understand the duties of the soul, Avodah Salev and the Schar. Ibn Ezra goes into a very, uh, very um, esoteric discussion of his concept of Avodah Hashem and reward. Uh, he discussed it in his, other, in his other works as well. So basically, Ibn Ezra says, to really understand Olam Haba, it's not really a simple matter. You can't simply state it and expect people to understand it. So Torah omitted it because it was too hard. It was too hard simply for everyone to understand. The Torah was given as a universal document for everyone, not just for the elites. And therefore, the Torah doesn't contain things which wouldn't have been co- coherent to ordinary people. This idea, this, this idea is mentioned, the Chavot Lovos as well mentions this, he says. He says that the whole nature of the soul, he says, is uh, not something we really understand. The idea of a disembodied soul. We don't really understand what that is. Certainly, how such a soul experiences pleasure or pain, he says. So the... There are some allusions to this in Zechariah, and there are some allusions to it, he says, but, uh, but, but, but to simply come out explicitly and start talking about the soul and its reward would be too esoteric a concept, and therefore the Torah, the Torah doesn't, uh, doesn't discuss it. So we have, we have Rosadia, 
and the Chavos Lovas in one of his approaches saying people understood it, it was logically demonstrable, and the other approach is it was too hard for anybody to understand what it is in the first place. So between one and the other, the Torah doesn't explain it, either because it's well-known, because it was known from the Torah, and by philosophy, and by reason, or because it's too hard to understand, or because the other reason we said, because of the Rashadi's other reason, it's too far in the future, and so on. So we, we have a variety of these reasons why the Torah doesn't mention, doesn't mention Olam Haba. Chavos Lovas has a number of other reasons, a number of other reasons as well. He says, uh, another point worth mentioning, the, the art scroll in the Chumash I saw brings a couple of reasons, a couple of answers to this question right at the beginning of their discussion of the Pasha. They say that, art scroll says that the, the commentaries follow two major approaches. One approach that art scroll does not mention is the Chavos Lovas is one of his reasons he says that uh, people then, in the time of the Torah, were, uh, were, um, were foolish and unsophisticated. They had sikhlus and they had miyotavana, which is something that you'll understand if you study the Torah, he says. And the Torah gradually brings them out of the depths of their ignorance, he says. That, uh, that, that, that when, he first, when, he, when he first starts teaching a young child, he says, he, the kid doesn't really understand, He's not going to tell him that he'll get, uh, he'll reach lofty stages of character development. The kid's going to say, hey, I'm going to work hard and, and punish myself for, for, the, for these abstractions that I don't relate to, he says. You tell the kid, you'll give him food, you'll give him nice clothing, you'll give him things to ride on, toys, whatever it is, he says. That's what the kid will understand. That's what he'll relate to, he says. You'll punish him, you'll give him deprivation and take away his supper and so on if he doesn't learn. That's what you do to a kid, he says. When the kid gets older and understands more, then he, he understands that there are more important things, more important goals and, uh, and uh, things to strive for. So that's what Kodesh Baruch Hu, he says, that uh, he, he gave us things that we understood in the time of the, in the, time of the Dar of the Midbar, he says, that he, he, he told, he, th- he threatened them and uh, enticed them with things they understood. And Olam Haba is, uh, is a more advanced concept, which they weren't ready for yet uh, at that time. Sorry? Yeah, so the question of Yudas Adarus is a, is a tricky one. It's, it, it is kind of orthodox dogma today. It is, there are certain statements in the Talmud to that effect, that the Talmud indicates, at least in certain cases, that later generations were not as great as earlier ones. If the Rishonim were, with their hearts and understanding Torah, were as great as Pisco Shel Ulam, ours is, like, uh, ours is like a needle, the eye of a needle, and ours is smaller. If they were like Malachim, we're like Hamorim. It's not entirely, they were like people, or if they were like people, we're like Hamarim. It's not entirely clear if that was meant to be universal. There are also statements in the Talmud that we're more advanced than they were in certain ways. For example, the Marim Bracha says, how come they used to have miracles and we don't have miracles? Is it because they were greater scholars? We're greater scholars. They only knew this much. We know this much. They can only, our, our, we know more. We're, we're more acute. We can, we, we, in certain, we're, we're, we're much greater scholars in Torah. So the Marim says, well, they were greater in Yerushalayim. They had a kind of... Uh, the, the stronger and more passionate Yerushalayim. Okay. Right. We refer to the Darmidbar as the Dordeah. Right. We refer to the Darmidbar as the Right. So there definitely are places where you can definitely find both sources in Chazal. Ras, Ashifcha, Alayam, the, the, the Amir's maidservants saw visions that were greater than Yecheskel's. We're going to read next week. We're going to read Yecheskel's Merkava, the Shifcha, Alayam, saw greater things than that. So there, there are definitely statements in Chazal, in Chazal um, both ways. The Chavaz Loves in particular and other places as well does say these kind of uh, pejorative things about the Dar Midbar. I think, I believe he says somewhere else when he explains, we shall discuss why the Torah has to tell us things that seem obvious like Los Irtzach and Los Ignov. 
So, a related discussion to the one we're having tonight. So, I think Thomas Law says that, yeah, they're obvious to us, but the people coming out of the Midbar were, you know, steeped in paganism and backwards and some other things, and they needed some, some guidance in, in things that might seem uh, more obvious to us. You can, you can find statements both ways. Certainly, the, the more orthodox version is that they were far greater than us, but uh, not entirely clear. And that's what he says here, that he says that, uh, that, that, they, that they weren't able to be... Uh, that they, that, that, that they actually grew, that the nation actually developed from what it was, from what it was back then. The final approach I want to discuss is that of the Rambam. The Rambam doesn't. Uh, the, the Rambam talks about this in several places. He discusses Olam Haba and Scharva Onesh, and it was, it was, these were very important concepts to him. He discusses them in a number of places in his writings, in the Yad and Hilchas Tshuva, in the Yad and other places. In the Pirush Mishnah, we mentioned earlier that Perichelik is the closest thing the Chazal had to. Uh, any kind of systematic theology. The Rambam also wrote down much of his theology, one version of it, in Perichelic. And he, he, wrote, uh, he wrote basically an introduction to Jewish thought in his incredibly you know, long introduction to the beginning of Perichelic. He wrote all about um, how we approach Agadah, what we believe, how Scharvonish works. So the Rambam in his various writings, again, discusses Elam Haba at great length. And in, in the Yad, in Hilchus Tshuva, Rambam goes on in great eloquence and great clarity at length, explaining that the, that the, the ultimate schar a person can have is Olam Haba. The ultimate onesh a person has is karas, is being cut off from Olam Haba. Incidentally, the Rambam's position on Gehenim, on a place where you get punished in the afterlife, is actually very murky. In the Yad, he basically doesn't discuss it. There is one, one place where, according to some texts, he talks about Gehenim, but that text is, uh, is, there's a major question about the Girsa. I'm not sure what the best guess of the contemporary scholars are. There's a major debate about the Girsa over there. Throughout the Yad, he doesn't really mention Gehenna. He does say in some places, he does have references to, to Rishayim being judged, Nidonim uh, Alamim, but the, he never really addresses Gehenna. In the Pirish Mishnah in Chalik, he does mention Gehenna explicitly. He doesn't make a big deal out of it, but he does when he discusses all these different things, Olam Mesim, and so on. He, men, he does mention uh, Ganadin and Gehenim. Gehenim is a place where Risharim are Bitsar. Talmud that brings different explanations. The sun, the sun will burn them, or the uh, or a, a, a unique uh, unique uh, unique fire will burn them. But he doesn't say much about it. And there's actually a um, something of a something of a discussion about whether Rambam believed in Gehenim or not. The, about about a dozen years ago. One of the very few times I uh, found myself in, a, in an unpleasant uh, public argument was uh, on, this, on this question of whether the Rambam believed in Gehenna. Rabbi, Rabbi Natan Slifkin had written in passing that, of course, Rambam didn't believe in Gehenna. So I challenged him on that. I said, really? I said, I know some of the Rishonim think that he did. So he, he didn't respond. So I wrote a long essay where I wrote a, uh, a detailed essay where I traced the, the attitude of Rishonim and Akronim to what they thought about the Rambam's belief in Gehenim. And I, uh, from, from, the, from, the, from the Rishonim, the contemporaries of the Rambam, down to later Akronim, to later Akronim, I discussed what the... And the, the bottom line is, the traditional understanding of the Rambam, the major Rishonim and Akronim, unanimously assumed that he did believe in Gehenim, despite the fact that there are certain ambiguities and the Ram- some Rishonim did uh, criticize the Rambam for, for not believing in Gehenim. The, the traditional belief is that he did. The discussion actually starts in the Maimonidean controversy, the beginning of the Maimonidean controversy, when the great sages of France and Germany 
were expressed great criticism of the Rambam, great, uh, great opposition to the Rambam for his unorthodox theology. And we don't have all their original criticisms uh, themselves, but we have, one of the things we have is a, is a famous poetic letter of the Ramban, where he wrote attempting to make peace, attempting to reconcile the Rambam with his uh, critics. So the Rambam wrote a uh, major letter trying to uh, defend the Rambam to the to the Balitosis, the, the, the Ramban had tremendous respect for the Balitosis. He writes to them as, uh, as in, in the most incredible terms of, uh, of, uh, of, of, of admiration and respect. But he tries to explain to them that, that they may not have done the Ramban full justice and, the Ramban, and they may not have understood the Ramban correctly. So in the course of his discussion, he mentions, he, he quotes various objections that were raised against the Rambam, and he says, uh, you say the Rambam doesn't believe in Gehenna. And the Rambam says he does, and, and, and gen- generally other Rishonim as well, have mostly said that the Rambam does believe in Gehenna. Now, again, the fact that great scholars in France and Germany thought he didn't just goes to show that he wasn't as clear as he could have been. I don't know if they had, if they had the Pirish mission or not, but, the, but uh, certainly the Rambam and the Yad is, uh, is ambiguous. And moreover, the problem is, and this is already a little beyond the scope of our discussion tonight, but the Rambam's whole theology doesn't really lend itself easily to Gehenna. The, the way the Rambam explains Olm Haba, we mentioned earlier, if Sadia explains that Olm Haba is a scientific thing, and the Ram- Rambam believed that as well. Rambam believes that Olm Haba is a logically demonstrable thing. You understand the nefesh, you understand the nefesh develops itself and purifies itself, and it survives. It survives the body because it reached some level. I, I don't understand it, but, that, but, 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 but the Rambam argues that this is a logical and uh, accessible, a truth accessible by reason, and the absence of that, as he says here in the Yad, in Hilchus the absence of that is Kares, is not having Olam Haba. The idea that there's a place where Hashem punishes the nefesh, again, I, I'm not that well, I, I don't understand Rambam, Aristotle, theology, philosophy and theology that well, but it apparently doesn't really have much of a place in the, in the Rambam's world, the idea of Ganem, even where he mentions it briefly in, uh, in, in, in the, in the Pirish Mishnah, it doesn't really mesh particularly well with his whole system. He mentions in passing Ganeiden, a place where people enjoy themselves, Ganem, a place where people suffer misery, but the, it doesn't really fit that well. So anyway, so I, I quoted mostly the traditional sources who virtually unanimously said that Rambam does believe in Gehenna. And I, I, some people were upset about my tone. They thought I was disrespectful to Rabbi Slifkin. Maybe I was. I, I don't, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to you know, miscalibrate your tone. Some people just thought I was ignorant. So I, I had all kinds of people commenting on this essay that this is the typical of the product of the yeshiva world who has no understanding of uh, academic and sophisticated approaches to the Rambam and, uh, and that I was rude to Rabbi Slifkin and I should apologize and so on. But the, in any event, the, the traditional approach is the, is the Rambam did believe in Gehenna, although, again, it, it, it's, it's a little bit awkward in the language of the Rambam in certain places. And, but, and the Rambam does say, does emphasize Gehenna, whatever Gehenna is, it is not the primary form of punishment. The Rambam says quite, uh, quite clearly, quite uh, unequivocally, in Haba, which is the ultimate life, unalloyed good, unmarred by any type of death. That's what the Torah means by Arichus Yamim. He says, Piron, what how are the Rishayim punished? They're not going to get this, they're going to be cut off. Anyone who doesn't get Chayim Elu is mace. He's not Chayla Olam. It's all phrased in the negative where he doesn't have. He's cut off from his, for his riches. He's Avad Kebehema. Again, not Gehenna. Behema doesn't go to Gehenna. He just, he has nothing. There's nothing left. The Behema just dies and that's it. There's nothing left. And Neodea, the, the person goes Lamala, and Behema is just gone. The Behema has nothing after it's, 
after its life. That's what kares means. Chazal tell us, he kares, tikares, he kares balum azet, tikares lalom haba. That's kares, that's the ultimate punishment that he, uh, the Rambam does say that the idea of balum haba is alluded to in Torah Shemachzav. Har Hashem, Kom Kacho, Derech HaKodesh, Chatzras Hashem, Noam Hashem, Oel Hashem, Heichel Hashem, Beis Hashem, Shar Hashem. All these things are Olam Haba. They're references, hardly explicit, but they're references to Olam Haba. Again, Rambam reiterates, what is Nekama, Shein Nekama Gedolimena? What is the ultimate uh, punishment? Being cut off and not having that Chayim. Again, some learn that's the ultimate Nekama, but before that you get the lesser Nekama of Gehenim. The ultimate Nekama is just to be terminated. Before that, there's a stage of Gehenna, maybe. Okay, the Rambam doesn't discuss it here, but uh, Rambam goes on and on. And then the Rambam says, Olm Haba is so wonderful. David was misavated. Everyone, it's, it's the most wonderful thing imaginable. Then the Rambam says, so gets back to our parsha. He says that, what is all this in Parsha B'chukosai, all the punishments of wars and, and famine and things in this world? So he says that, all this is Olm Hazeh. I'm telling you that Olm Haba is the real reward and, and real, real punishment. So what is all this about wars and famine and Olm Hazeh? All these things are true, the Rambam says. They will happen. That, that, I'm not denying that, he says. However, that's not real reward and punishment. He says, that's not the, 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 that's not the real Matan Schar, that's not the real punishment. What is it, he says? This is what's really going on here, he says. This is not real reward and punishment. The Pshat is, if a per- Hashem gives a person resources and opportunity to serve Hashem and to do mitzvahs and study Torah, if he takes advantage of those opportunities, Hashem reinforces him. Hashem gives him more. Hashem says, okay, you're using what I gave you, the opportunities I gave you well. Here's more of it. Here's peace. Here's plenty. You don't need to work. You're not going to have to struggle and be distracted from Torah. And Mitzvah Hashem gives you more of it, he says. So we can, so we can be, oh, say, call Yomenu, but Varam Shagav, that uh, he says, we don't have to spend our time on things of the guf. We can be, we can be available for studying Chachma and doing Mitzvahs to get, to get Olam Haba, which is a real reward. Conversely, he says, people who use the opportunities Hashem gives them for the wrong reason, then Hashem takes it away from them. He says, these are things that led you to do Averis and to go away from Hashem. I'm going to take back all these things I gave you, and I'm not even going to give you the chance to, to, to do mitzvahs anymore, to get on the you've, You're done. You forfeited it. So according to the Rambam, these are not really reward and punishment per se. These are just, uh, Hashem gives you opportunity to continue. Hashem gives you the opportunity to continue. Whatever you're doing, if you're doing mitzvahs and Torah, Hashem gives you the opportunity to do more of them. If you do Averis, Hashem takes away the opportunity to do more Averis and to do... Hashem takes away the things that led you to rebel against Him and takes away your opportunity to do more mitzvahs. And but that's all questions of... That's not schar v'onish at all. Those are simply consequences which will help you or hinder you in continuing to serve Hashem, in serving Hashem. That's not real schar v'onish. The Master Akech says that the Rambam's shita here is not unanimous. He says other Mepharshim understand, even if they concede the Rambam's basic point, that the Iker schar is Olam Haba, they say, but these are kind of dividends. We say in, we say in the Bryce in the, in the morning every day, we say, The real karen, the real reward is Olam Haba, but Hashem gives us uh, dividends which don't reduce the principle in this world. So other Rishonim say these are schar, but these are minor schar compared to the ultimate schar of the next world. But Rambam learned it's not really schar at all. Really it's, just, really, it's just a question of providing opportunity or withholding it. These things are not really schar v'onish at all. Schar v'onish is really in the next world and, the, and, and, and not in this world at all. I'm just going to conclude by discussing another related dis- discussion of the Rambam. I mentioned before that there was some controversy about whether the Rambam believed in Gehenna or not. A more famous controversy is whether the Rambam believed in Tchiesa Mesim or not. Rambam discusses Olm Haba at great length, 
But as I mentioned earlier, according to the Rambam, Olam Haba and Tchies HaMesim are two entirely different things. Tchies HaMesim is the physical bodily resuscitation of the dead. Bodies will reanimate, people will walk around as human beings. Olam Haba is disembodied souls. We, we can't really understand what that means today, but it means uh, souls without body. And, it has not, and, and that's the ultimate thing. Olam Haba, the Rambam discusses at great length in all his writings. He considers that essential, central and essential, what we, what we just explained. It's accessible to reason. And it's the ultimate tova, tova tzvunel tzadikim, and the ultimate punishment is to be cut off from it. Olm Haba, the Rambam, had a great deal to talk about, to say about, and he felt, he felt it was uh, susceptible to analysis and explanation. Tchiyas Amesim, the Rambam does mention briefly in the Yad, but very briefly, doesn't say much about it. The bodily resuscitation of the soul, he has very little to say about. Other Rishonim, Ramban famously believed that Tchiyas Amesim and Olm Haba are the same thing. Tchiyas Amesim is Olm Haba, the world to come, a person will be, will be there with his body. He will, he will have a body. Hashem made the body. This is related to the whole general Rambam following Aristotle didn't have much use for the body. He believed the body was limiting and vulgar and low and the soul was a much loftier thing. Rambam, coming from a very different philosophical tradition, believed that if the body is de Hashem, if the body was made by Hashem, we shouldn't disparage it. The body can be a wonderful thing if used properly. There's no reason to say there won't be a body lost in love. It's Hashem's body. It'll be purer and more refined. But we will have bodies in Olam Haba. Rambam doesn't agree. Rambam thinks that bodies are just uh, hopelessly uh, limiting and, and low, and it's not the ultimate way to experience Elam Haba. So the, the, the Rambam, within his shita, discusses Elam Haba at length, does not say much about, very, very little about Tchies Mason. So once again, there were those who accused him of not believing in Tchies Mason. So he says, so, so the... So the so people had two questions for him. They asked him, first of all, why isn't Tchies HaMesim? Um, he says, first of all, he says, he says, why isn't Tchies HaMesim mentioned clearly in the Torah? It's mentioned in Nevi'im, he says, in Daniel, it is mentioned briefly, Rabbi Mishani Afar will, will, will arise and stand, uh, will arise from the dust. It's not really discussed in most of Torah Shabbat Sav. And B, he says, uh, he says, Right, he, he, he writes, he, he, he asks, he, he, he asks um, this is the question he focuses on, he, he brings two questions, this is the one he focuses on, why, not, not discussing his first question now, but his second question is, why is Tchies Mason not, not mentioned anywhere clearly in the Torah? He also discusses why he doesn't discuss it in any length in his writings, but why isn't Tchies Mason mentioned in the Torah? So he says that, he says, he, he, he discusses that at some length as well, he says that Tchies Mason is a nace, he says. Tchiesimesim is a flat-out nace. That's why he doesn't discuss it, he explains, in, in, I believe he says, in, in any detail, because there's nothing to say. It's a nace, Hashem will do it. Well, what can I say? I can't analyze it, I can't explain it, I can't prove it. It's a nace, Hashem does what he wants. Om Haba is scientific, it's philosophical, I can explain it, I can, I, can, I can understand it, he says, I can talk about it. It's part of the fundamental plan of the way God designed the world. Tchiesimesim is just a nace. And for similar reasons, he says, that's why, for related reasons, that's why the Torah doesn't discuss in any detail at all, similar to what we saw in Chavos Lavavos, that people then, the Chavos Lavavos says the Torah doesn't discuss Olm Haba, because people weren't sophisticated enough to, 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 to be able to relate to Olm Haba. Rambam says that the reason the Torah doesn't discuss Tchies HaMesim is because, is because he says that people at that time were part of a uh, degenerate philosophical school. They believed in the eternity of the world. They didn't believe in, uh, in Nisim and so on, he says. They, they, they didn't believe in Nisim in general. That's why they, that's why they challenged Moshe Rabbeinu in every opportunity, the, the Mitzrayim, and so on. 
and he says that, and he, and he says that the Hashem had to explain to them, no, that Hashem does run the world, Hashem can intervene in the world, Hashem can override the laws of nature. When he said, when Hashem wanted to give them the Torah, he says, he says that eventually they would understand Nebuah, they would understand that, that the world is created, that Hashem can change the laws of nature, but uh, he says that, 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 that but in, in, the initial, in the initial generation of the Torah, he says he, he, says he didn't take them out of Olam Hazer right away, the idea of Nisim, because, again, Tzchar Vonish, he felt, was more al Hatava because of, and, uh, and, and, and the... And the and, 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 and the and the eternity of the soul again. Those are all scientific things. Those are all things that that, that they could relate to, because that because the, the old Aristotelian view of a god who doesn't uh, override the laws of nature that was still consistent with Olam Haba, with uh, with uh, that was still consistent with 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 the with the, the with with the, with, the the, with the theology they believed in that. Um, that, but he didn't want to start discussing Nisim with them until they were more used to the until they were more used to the beliefs in the of, of Nisim that that that, that 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 Hashem could override the world. Now again, the Torah is full of discussions of Nisim, Kriyas Yamsuf, and the plagues in Egypt, and the Mun, and the and hitting the rock. There, there are lots of Nisim in the Torah. Why why the Rambam is? I'd have to read this a little more carefully. I may have missed some nuance of his thought here. But why the Rambam believed that Hashem could explain to them the other Nisim, but not the Nisim of Kriyas Yamsuf? I'm not sure. I'll call upon the Rambam here is similar to the Chavos Lavavos that Om, this is not Om Haba. Om Haba is something that they could have they could have handled. Om Haba is not something which involves Nisim and a change in a change in the laws of nature. But Tchias Amesim specifically is something that 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 involves a blatant nace. Hashem simply changes the laws of nature and overrides them. That's not something the people of that time were ready to accept, and therefore Torah Shabbat doesn't mention it. This, this is similar to what the Chavos Lavavos says, but Om Haba itself. Chavos Lavavos says Om Haba itself is not something. They related to because they were like children. They 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 only they, they only related to the more immediate and tangible here and now. Rambam says even if they understood all the haba, but but Mesim, which involves blatant nisim, that requires a, a theological commitment to the belief that Hashem can override the laws of nature. That's not something they believed, and that's why the Torah doesn't focus on Mesim.